0: Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin, and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.CanadaEHX.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. There have been some fantastic satirical Canadian comedy shows. SCTV, Kids in the Hall, The Baroness Von Sketch Show. All of those shows are great, but only one did the following. Got a Liberal MP kicked out of their party. Planted a Canadian flag in the middle of Russia's Red Square made a future president of the United States the butt of a joke involving poutine. When it came on the air, it shed a whole new light on the headlines, and news never looked the same. I'm Craig Baird, this is Canadian History X, and we're talking about This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Launched in 1993, the weekly TV comedy focused on Canadian politics and events through a mock news program with sketches, parody commercials, and hilarious interviews with public figures. This Hour is 22 Minutes almost immediately became a Canadian staple, and it was hatched by comedic geniuses from Newfoundland whose lineage traces back through the decades. Like a family tree of funny, This Hour has 22 Minutes as the hilarious offspring of CODCO and wonderful Grand Band. Codco was born in 1973 when Tommy Sexton, an actor, writer, dancer, musician, and comedian Diane Olsen, wrote a series of short sketches that satirized and lampooned contemporary Newfoundland called Cod on a Stick. The first production was done in Toronto when Paul Thompson, a director-producer, gave them $300 as seed money and offered them the stage at the Theatre Pass Mural. After the Ontario performance, the show was mounted in St. John's that same year and then toured Newfoundland. The group name, CODCO, came from an abbreviation of COD Company and was composed of Newfoundlanders who had developed material based on their experiences at home while being away. Original members included Sexton and Olsen, Greg Malone, Paul Sumetz, and two individuals who will feature prominently in this episode, Mary Walsh and Kathy Jones. Walsh was studying at Ryerson University when she dropped out to join the group. Jones was touring with the Newfoundland Travelling Theatre Company and while in Toronto looked for more work and saw an opportunity and joined them as well. By 1974, CODCO was touring Newfoundland and filming a show for the National Film Board and that's when Kathy's brother, Andy, joined the cast. For the distinctive Newfoundland collective of creative geniuses, nothing was sacred. The more untouchable the target, the more savage and swift the attack. After 1976, members weren't working together as much. Instead, they supported each other's individual projects. By now, Olsen had left the group, and a couple of new faces had joined the collective, including Greg Toomey. Born in St. John's, Newfoundland, Toomey had been part of the comedy scene for many years, who often collaborated with the group, and he's an important character in today's story. Meanwhile, from this branch of the comedic tree came Wonderful Grand Band. The musical comedy group was formed in St. John's in 1978 and released an album a year later. That led them to tape a variety show for CBC in 1980, which combined original and traditional music with satirical comedy sketches. Wonderful Grand Band aired from 1980 to 1983, and amongst the cast were CODCO members Kathy Jones and Mary Walsh, who were part of the show during its final season. The show was massive in Newfoundland, which had a population of 550,000, and Wonderful Grand Band regularly drew 250,000 viewers each week. Among the faithful viewers was a teenage boy named Rick Mercer, another important character as you'll soon see. He said of the show, Wonderful Grand Band had the biggest influence on me, more than any other television production in my lifetime. Gerald Luntz, his future husband and creative producer for 22 Minutes said, It was the biggest show in Newfoundland, it would clear the streets. The whole province was sitting in front of their televisions because it was theirs it was about them three years after wonderful grand band went off the air members of codco reunited for a benefit show in st john's tom sexton and greg malone who had also been part of the show with cbc were in talks with the broadcaster about developing a new project with the success of the reunion show cbc asked them to make a conco tv series CODCO began production in 1986 and debuted on the CBC in 1988, and many compared it to The Kids in the Hall due to its absurdist satirical humour, openly gay cast members, and their use of drag. The show was a hit, but not just with viewers, it won the Gemini Award, essentially a Canadian Emmy for Best Comedy Series in 1989 and 1992, and Best Variety Series in 1990. It also earned a nomination for Best Writing in a Comedy in 1989 but lost to the kids in the hall. It eventually won in 1992 and 1993. But the win was a little bittersweet, as that was the year the show ended. Throughout the show's five seasons and 63 episodes, Greg Toomey appeared as a regular guest performer, and he would become part of the next big thing for CBC. CBC was looking to work with Codco once again, and as it turned out, Mary Walsh, had an idea. Mary Walsh had decades of comedic performances under her belt. She was a critically acclaimed entertainer and had a vision for a new project, a satirical new show. Walsh took the idea to Michael Donovan, the co-founder of Salter Street Films, who loved it, and he took it to Jack Kellum, the producer of Wonderful Grand Band and CODCO, who loved it as well. Donovan then went to Andy Jones, Kathy's brother and former CODCO member, to see if he wanted to be part of the new show. Worn out, he turned them down. In 1996, when interviewed by McLean's, he said, I was into my personal freedom at the time. Do I regret it? Sometimes. They turned to his sister, Kathy Jones. She had worked with Mary Walsh for two decades, but was shocked to be included because she had no interest in politics and wondered what she would bring to the show. She found the news upsetting and didn't like to watch it. Plus, she preferred creating light-hearted, fun sketches. But despite her worries, she signed on. Meanwhile, Rick Mercer, that young fan inspired by a wonderful grand band, was making a name for himself. He landed in Kathy and Mary's radar when he attended one of Mary's shows at the St. John's Community Center a few years earlier. He put a cigarette down a pipe in one of the bleachers and, quote, That is how I met Mary. She tore my head off for almost burning the building down. Kathy had worked with Mercer in 1988 when she hired him to be a technician on her one-woman show, Wedding in Texas. And that's where he met Gerald Luntz, who was the show's producer and stage manager. In 1990, Mercer created a one-man stage show titled, Show Me the Button, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die. And he gained attention when he performed it at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. By this point, Mercer and Lunds were a couple, and Lunds directed the show. In 1992, Mercer created his second stage show, I've Killed Before, I'll Kill Again. and that same year, he acted in Secret Nation alongside Kathy Jones and Mary Walsh. After circling each other's orbits for years, Kathy and Mary approached Rick about joining them on their newest adventure. He was surprised and nervous about working with two individuals he considered comedic icons. He said, I was terrified because I just did not believe that I had the talent to be in a room with Kathy and Mary." Mary then turned to the very funny Greg Toomey, who they knew very well. For a showrunner, they turned to Gerald Luntz, who called Toomey a comedic genius and considered Kathy Jones to be the most versatile comic actress since Carol Burnett. The show that Mary Walsh had in mind, however, was very different from the one we have come to know and love, at the time, there was talk of a musical about the news each week and an ongoing sketch about a family called the Rosedales, satirizing residents of the wealthy Toronto neighbourhood. It was more of a variety news show than straight-up satirical, Mercer said. Those meetings in St. John's were a real eye-opener. What was evident was no one knew what the show was going to be. Mercer called it Canadian Saturday Night Live. Other ideas included a guest host who didn't give a monologue. Instead, that task could be split between Mercer and Walsh. There were also The Puppets, akin to Spitting Image, a British show that ran from 1984 to 1996 and satirized the royal family and politicians using puppets. I remember watching Spitting Image when I was a kid. Those puppets terrified me when I was a child and they terrify me now, and for good reason. Not having those puppets was a good call in my opinion. For Mercer, this was not the show he signed up for. He said, Puppets were mentioned. I remember this making me dizzy. He was worried no one would watch the show, but thankfully the show began to develop into something new. Editorial producer Jeff Dion said, Gerald was the showrunner, the creative producer. They had a pretty clear idea as to what the show should be, and it didn't include some of the elements that Mary had in mind. According to Mercer, Gerald Lund's greatest contribution to the show was the 90 second rule, which was that no matter what, nothing could be more than 90 seconds, and that 60 seconds was the sweet spot. That rule would keep the show moving, and for the first few years, it was followed to the letter. To train the cast in how news is presented, they turned to Jeff Dion, who was a CBC News producer and was to become the show's editorial producer. His job was to keep the show on track journalistically and ensure that its content was topical. Gerald Lund said, Jeff came out of news, and we were circus people. He must have felt like, oh my god, I've dropped out of news and joined the circus. Jeff Dion's arrival helped anchor the show in reality and shaped it into what we know today. Mercer said, I can't understate how important Jeff was to the show, because he was a real newsman and he knew how it worked. Jeff Dion's role wasn't to turn Rick Mercer and Mary Walsh into journalists, instead his job was to teach them the tics and mannerisms of newscasters and reporters in the field. It was also decided early on that the show would be filmed in Halifax, not Toronto. It seemed like all the pieces were coming together, but the show still didn't have a name. That came from Michael Donovan, who was inspired by an iconic Canadian television show. This Hour Has 7 Days was a news magazine show that ran on CBC from 1964 to 1966, offering in-depth analysis and social and political stories from the previous week. Despite huge ratings, it was cancelled suddenly in 1966, allegedly on orders from the Prime Minister's office, which led to huge protests on Parliament Hill. Mercer said, God, how I wanted to be on a show that the Prime Minister's office would want cancelled. I wanted to be on a show that would make politicians in Ottawa kick their TVs in. From that iconic show came the title, This Hour Has 22 Minutes, which referenced the fact that on a half hour of terrestrial television, 8 minutes of commercials left only 22 minutes of content. Mercer felt that the title was smart, and with the cast assembled, the show was beginning to take its final shape. All that was left was to figure out characters and signature sketches. After all, this show wasn't straight satire, and for that, they turned to the comedic legend Kathy Jones. She had been reluctant to join a new show, but when it came to comedy, she knew how to create something funny. Mercer said of sassy reporter Bay Bennett, one of Kathy's most famous characters, It was a character filled with joy and featured no malice, a sunny respite and a sea of anger. Kathy's characters were always happy, every one of them always laughed. Kathy Jones and Mary Walsh also created the two elderly women who talked about the daily events. Greg Toomey created foreign correspondent Tim McMillan, my favorite character from the show, he always got on the wrong plane in the airport and was never where he should be when anchors went live to him for an update on a news story. One of the funniest examples of this was when he was supposed to be covering the OJ Simpson trial in Los Angeles but wound up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And then there were the famous Rick Mercer rants, which were very affordable to shoot and easy for CBC to agree to. And then there was Marge Delahunty, by far the most famous character on the show. Created by Mary Walsh, Marge was known for wearing a warrior outfit like Xena, Warrior Princess, as she cornered politicians to give them advice, which was usually in the form of an insult. Mary Walsh insisted on doing her own makeup, always using cheap drugstore products. And Marge Delahunty became a cultural icon. And aside from these segments and characters, cast members also had to come up with names for when they would be anchors on the show. Rick Mercer became J.B. Dixon, which was loosely based on J.B. Roberts, a Canadian-American television journalist currently working for Fox News Channel as the co-anchor of America Reports. Greg Toomey became Frank McMillan, the brother of the often lost foreign correspondent Tim McMillan. Mary Walsh became Molly McGuire, a reference to an Irish 19th century secret society by the same name. Kathy Jones chose the name Sidney Dubuzinchuk, which was based on the name of CBC midday anchor Tina Subartniak which she felt had a musical sound to it. To direct this hilarious cast of characters, they tapped Harvey Sawyer Foner, who had two years of experience directing the youth consumer show Street Sense, and at the beginning both shows actually shared a studio. He had the difficult task of tying the news, sketches, rants and more together into a cohesive show. With all these creative pieces in place, CBC hoped they had a hit on their hands, but they still played it safe and ordered six episodes to start with a budget of $100,000 per episode. Gerald Luntz said that they were so poorly funded, they had only three wigs when the show started. And that wasn't the only thing causing tension. Originally, Mary Walsh was credited as the head writer, but cast members questioned this decision. They were all responsible for writing their own material, and they were the only writers on the show at the time. Eventually, Walsh lost the title but retained the creator credit. Then as the first taping got closer, Mary's back threw a wrench into the proceedings. Throughout most of her adult life, Mary Walsh dealt with back problems. Unable to cope with the discomfort any longer, a few weeks before the show's launch, she went in for back surgery. The cast and crew would walk down to the nearby Cambridge Suites where she was bedridden to hold meetings. Needing to have Mary in the first episode, a plan was hatched to film her as March Delahunty, who was so overcome with emotion at the state of the world that she was confined to her bed. George Anthony, the creative head of CBC Television Arts, Music, Science and Variety said, It was just amazing to see it happen that way. It just established March Delahunty as one of the best characters on the show. And that first episode set the precedent and format for all of the future episodes. First cast members would deliver jokes at the news desk in front of a live audience. Then they threw to a pre-filmed segment shown on monitors as the audience reactions were recorded. A few sketches were filmed in studio in front of the audience and all of those elements were assembled for broadcast. When the cast sat down to watch the first episode, Rick Mercer was blown away and called it the greatest moment of his life. The show aired on October 8, 1993, bringing in 468,000 viewers. A respectable debut of a Canadian show. A young man making his way in the entertainment industry was one of those viewers. Mark Critch had been staying in Mercer's spare room while acting in a comedy group, he said. I stood up in a pub watching the debut of 22 Minutes, trying to shush the crowd around me. There was Rick on national television doing sketch comedy. I couldn't believe it. He had made it. As it turned out, Critch would have his own long history with the show, but we'll get to that later. Following the debut, the audience grew to 535,000 viewers for the second episode, and it was building momentum as Canada headed to one of its most important federal elections. For the previous nine years, the country had been governed by Progressive Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and by the early 1990s his party was unpopular with many Canadians because of the failures of Meach Lake and Charlottetown Accords, and the introduction of the Goods and Services Tax or GST. Kim Campbell succeeded him as leader and became the first, and so far only, female Prime Minister in mid-1993. She almost immediately called an election, which was expected to reshape Canadian politics. And CBC put this hour as 22 minutes, front and centre, and gave it access to live election coverage. The cast wrote news copy and sketches that were performed each time the feed went to them. On October 25, 1993, The Liberals won the election and gained 96 seats to form a new government under Jean Chrétien with 177 seats. The Progressive Conservatives suffered a terrible defeat, losing 154 seats and finished with only two. As news of the defeat trickled in, the 22-minute cast formed into a conga line and danced on camera while singing, Mulroney is no more, hey! Peter Mansbridge, who was on the anchor news desk that night, said, These guys captured the mood. There was a conga line going on in the country that night, they just put a face to it. Despite the high ratings, the network still had trouble deciding on an airtime because of its edgy humour. The network did not want 22 minutes in primetime near its more mainstream, rural Canadian air farce. The first two episodes aired at 10.30pm on Monday. After the election special, it bounced around between 10.30pm and 11pm. The CBC seemed to consider it a late night show. But when it aired at 11 p.m., the ratings fell to 300,000. After the Christmas break, the show aired at 8 p.m. for the first three episodes in 1994, and the difference was unbelievable. It reached 900,000 viewers and outdrew the primetime news and Royal Canadian Air Force. And with that, it cemented a second season. With the first season over, only the four main cast members of Mercer, Jones, Walsh, and Toomey served as writers. The second season brought along paul bellini if you love kids in the hall as much as i do that name is instantly recognizable as the silent character who appeared in various sketches wearing nothing but a bath towel and along with being an iconic part of the show he was also a gifted comedy writer he was joined by ed mcdonald in the new writers room and as the cast prepared for the second season there was nothing but praise for them bellini called kathy jones the best sketch comedian he had ever worked with Considering he worked with the kids in the hall, that was very high praise. Fellow new writer, Ed McDonald, said of Mercer, I went to a taping the week before I started on the show, and you could tell right away that he was a star. Meanwhile, Mercer was amazed by his castmate, Greg, and said, I don't think there's anyone who's worked on the show who is not entirely in awe of Greg Tooney. Director Henry Sora stated that Mary Walsh completely embodied the characters that she portrayed. Audiences in the industry agreed. The talent of the 22 Minutes cast was unbelievable. But those who were often the butt of the jokes had concerns. The politicians. At first, many politicians thought This Hour Has 22 Minutes was simply a local news show, and this allowed them to let down their guard without realizing they were appearing on one of the best satirical shows in Canadian history. Preston Manning, leader of the Reform Party of Canada, a right-wing populist federal party, was one of the first politicians to appear on the show. He happened to be in Halifax and came face to face with Rick Mercer in a CBC camera. Rick Mercer said, The first time with Preston Manning, I can remember when it starts to dawn on him that this is not a real news person. Later that season, Mary Walsh said on the show, Preston Manning's speeches are wonderful, but I hear they're even more edifying in the original German. In response, the Reform Party threatened to sue 22 minutes. Two weeks later though, as word of mouth spread, the Reform Party realized the benefit of being on the show and saw it as an opportunity to humanize their leader. This time, Preston Manning asked to come on. Mercer called their relationship mutually parasitic because it benefited both the politicians and the show. Eventually, being on 22 Minutes became a rite of passage for provincial or federal politicians in Canada, and it didn't take long for Prime Minister Jean Chrétien to make an appearance, and for that he would go up against one of his most challenged adversaries, Marge Delahunty. She often ambushed the Prime Minister, and Mary Walsh remembers those one take and stressful segments fondly. She said, I was always walking away thinking of some of the ways the interaction could have gone better, funnier, but of course you couldn't get a do-over. I especially enjoyed doing the setups with former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien in his office. He was just so naturally funny. This hour is 22 minutes was a bonafide hit. After its first full season in 1994, the show picked up three Gemini Awards, winning Best Comedy Program or Series, Best Performance in a Comedy Program for the Cast, and Best Writing in a Comedy. New segments were added and Greg Toomey created a bit where whatever celebrity he was talking to attempted to get him into a headlock. Sometimes that took as little as 15 seconds. One of the most famous instances was when former American Secretary of State Colin Powell put him in a headlock. Then there was Marge Delahunty sleepover, where politicians got in bed for discussions. And this resulted in some very interesting situations. Myron Thompson, a Reform Party MP from Alberta, who said he didn't hate homosexuals but hated homosexuality, had a Marge Delahunty sleepover with Sven Robinson, the first openly gay member of Parliament in Canadian history, and they weren't alone in the bed. There was Elsie Wayne, a progressive conservative from New Brunswick who opposed same-sex marriage and Viagra for war veterans, and NDP leader Alexa McDonough. George Dion said, Interestingly, Myron Thompson didn't take his cowboy boots off. Alexa McDonough had on pink slippers. People's feet were sticking out the end of the bed, and then you saw those cowboy boots. Bits like this helped the show grow to over 1 million viewers a week. And with that came more accolades. By 1996, many critics considered it to be the best show on Canadian television, and it earned a front page profile in Maclean's magazine which wrote, Together, the 22 minutes cast achieves four-part harmony. And although happy with the success of the show and the many opportunities it afforded, Mary Walsh said in that 1996 cover story, The basic problem is that my original conception didn't have five hairy-ass producers making all the decisions. I'm happy with the show, but it is a boys' club. Regardless, the show was a Gemini darling, and had a tough time losing the Best Comedy category. It won 5 years straight, 1994, 1995, 1996, 1997, and 1998, It also took home Best Writing in 1995, 1996, and 1998. And around this time, Greg Toomey said, these are the sweet times, even though you know that someday, it has to go poof. And those accolades didn't come easily. Working on the show was a grueling process, and it was common for new writers to leave after a week or two. It was non-stop. Gerald Luntz said the show was fast, six days a week, with one day to do your laundry. But with that came comedic gold, like the segment, Talking with Americans. The idea for the segment came when they had time to kill while Mercer was in Washington, D.C. with George Dion and cameraman Peter Sutherland. Before Jimmy Kimmel did this on Hollywood Boulevard, Mercer came up with the idea of filming himself talking to Americans but using false facts. The goal was to satirize America's poor understanding of Canada. In his first segment, Mercer asked a Capitol Hill staffer and asked him about a fictional presidential summit between Bill Clinton and Ralph Benmerguay who was the host of Nightlines on CBC. Mercer also convinced the staffer that Canadians were not familiar with the concept of alphabetical order. The segment debuted in 1998 and became incredibly popular among Canadians and one of the most famous segments of the show. Over time more segments were filmed and they included some very prominent Americans who were put on the spot by Mercer. Governor of Iowa Tom Vilsack was fooled into believing that Canada was finally adopting a 24 hour day and legalizing VCRs. David Hasselhoff and Jerry Springer believed that Jean Chrétien was a small town mayor in Canada. Governor of Arkansas Mike Huckabee congratulated Canada for building a dome over its national igloo to save it from global warming. Vice President Al Gore didn't correct Mercer when he said Canada was moving its capital from Kingston to Toronto. But the most famous segment aired in 2000 when Mercer asked then-presidential candidate George W. Bush for his reaction to an endorsement from Canadian Prime Minister Jean Poutine, which Bush did not correct. This quickly became nationwide news in Canada and the United States. Mercer said, I was suddenly an American news story, and I realized how much bigger the United States is than Canada. Years later, President George W. Bush was on a state visit to Canada and said, Mr. Prime Minister, I have one regret about my visit, I was really hoping to meet Sean Poutine. The comment was met with a thunderous response. Talking to Americans became so popular that on April 1st, 2001, it became a special. It used previously broadcast and new exclusive material and became the most viewed special on Canadian TV that year. It drew in 2.7 million viewers and remains the most viewed comedy special in CBC's history and it received two Gemini nominations which Mercer declined following the September 11th attacks. Meanwhile, the show that birthed talking to Americans was beginning to struggle. The same year Talking to Americans hit the airwaves, showrunner Gerald Luntz left the show to begin work on Made in Canada, a new series he co-created with Mercer. Set to debut in the autumn of 1998, it was a dark satire about the Canadian television industry featuring Rick Mercer as Richard Strong. When it aired, it became critically acclaimed and remained on the air for five years. With the original showrunner gone, this hour as 22 minutes was without a leader, and it looked to someone from its past, Paul Bellini. Bellini had served as a writer on the show from 1994 to 1997 before he left to write a novel with Kids in the Hall cast member Scott Thompson based on the Buddy Cole character. Buddy Babylon, the autobiography of Buddy Cole was released in 1998. That year, Bellini was asked to return to 22 Minutes as showrunner because he was talented as a writer and everyone really liked him. But Bellini's sweet nature would nearly be the show's undoing. By now, he had to deal with the cast that could at times be difficult. Rick Mercer said, Paul Bellini is a guy who has show business in his blood. He's great, but I don't think he's the guy for the job. Mercer added that it wasn't Bellini's fault, and Gerald Luntz commented, He got eaten alive. He's too sweet. He's too nice. On top of this, Bellini had to contend with a strike by 1,800 technicians, which began February 17th and crippled the CBC. The labour dispute occurred in the 13th week of the season and hurt the flow of the show while forcing the national broadcaster to run shortened nightly broadcasts, cancelled much of its local programming, and stopped production on many shows. 22 Minutes came back in April 1999 with a two-hour show. Jack Kellum, a senior producer, said, I think that was probably the closest the show ever came to sinking. The season finally wrapped soon after and Bellini was not asked to return as showrunner. He was replaced by Mark Farrell, who had been hired earlier as a writer on the show. Adding Salt to the Wounds for the first time in its history, and the show was not nominated for Best Comedy Program or Series at the Gemini, that honour went to another series, Made in Canada. And although disappointing, it wasn't all bad. 22 Minutes still picked up quite a few other awards that night, The show's New Year's Eve special won Best Music Variety Programmer Series, Best Direction in a Variety of Performing Arts Programmer Series, Best Writing in a Comedy, and won for Best Performance in a Comedy Series. As the 1990s came to an end, the show hit a new high thanks to a petition, but it also dealt with the departure of a key cast member. The fate of 22 minutes seemed to be intertwined with politics, In the winter of 2000, Canada went through another federal election as Prime Minister Jean Chrétien hoped for a third majority government. The new Canadian alliance was looking to make gains after electing a new leader, Stockwell Day. To appeal to Canadians, Day put forward a proposal during the campaign to hold a binding referendum on issues that had 3% of support. At the time, Canada had a population of 31 million people, which meant a petition needed about 900,000 signatures. Rick Mercer said he saw an opportunity. He said... We all saw this as a backdoor way to get abortion, capital punishment, gay rights, those types of hot-button issues on the ballot. He put forward the idea to have 22-minute viewers sign a petition that would have Stockwell Day change his name to Doris Day, the same name as the famous American actress and singer. The segment featured Mercer, standing next to a television, speaking directly to viewers about the proposed policy. Producers of 22 Minutes didn't want to air it, worrying that it was not funny. Mercer agreed there wasn't many jokes in it but he stuck to his guns and it aired. CBC producers made bets on how many signatures the petition would receive and expected 15,000 at most. And the producers are very wrong in their estimate. Within 48 hours, the petition had hundreds of thousands of signatures. At one point, 42 people a second were signing the petition. And by the time it was done, over 1 million people had signed the petition to change Stockwell Day's name to Doris Day. Due to the news coverage, gains made by the Canadian Alliance in places like Ontario suddenly evaporated and the policy idea was taken off the table. Mercer said, We were there to make fun of the news, but suddenly, we were making the news. On November 27th, 2000, Chrétien won a majority government with 172 seats, while Stockwell Day and the Canadian Alliance had to settle with 66 seats. And if you're wondering, the Doris Day petition is often cited by many as the funniest thing 22 Minutes ever did. On the heels of that incredible high, the show was dealt a blow when Rick Mercer announced he would not be back for the show's ninth season in July 2001. Something had to give. At the time, Mercer was filming 22 minutes from fall to spring and made in Canada in the summer. He was exhausted and confident the show would be fine without him. He stated, if he thought otherwise, he would have never left. Senior producer Jack Kellum said, it definitely threw us out of kilter when Rick left. Mercer filmed Made in Canada until 2003, then launched Rick Mercer's Monday Report, later called The Rick Mercer Report, which ran for 15 seasons. Meanwhile, 22 Minutes looked for a replacement and various individuals were interviewed. But in the end, Colin Mochrie was chosen. Mochrie was well known for his role in the improvisational show Whose Line Is It Anyways, hosted by Drew Carey and various guest spots on American and Canadian television shows. He said... They asked if I was interested, and I said sure, because at that point I was younger. I was always into things that really scared me. He felt a lot of pressure replacing Mercer as well. And around the same time, Mark Critch became a new writer, and by now all new writers were given a two-week trial to see if they could cut it. Critch described the experience. The 22-minute offices were not what you would call flashy. The whole place seemed like a camp set up by carnies while the fair was in town for the weekend. For Mockery, the schedule of doing Whose Line Is It Anyways and other guest spots in Los Angeles while filming 22 minutes was grueling. He filmed on Whose Line and other shows from Sunday to Tuesday, then spent his time on 22 minutes from Wednesday to Saturday. At one point in 2002, he was suffering from exhaustion and had to miss a taping of the show. As a fill-in, they turned to a writer and sometimes roving reporter, Mark Critch. He said of the experience, The audience came in and was informed that I would be filling in for Colin Mockery. I heard a sigh of disappointment. The audience may have had that sigh of disappointment, but Critch would soon become a fan favorite on the show. Mercer's departure wouldn't be the last. By 2002, Mary Walsh was spending more time on other shows like Open Book and Hatching Matching and Dispatching. To fill in for her for two weeks, comedian Gavin Crawford was called in. He was critically acclaimed for his performances on The Gavin Crawford Show. He had been asked to replace Mercer before Mockery was hired but declined to focus on his own show, but eventually went on to fill in for Walsh eight times. Stephen Reynolds was the showrunner by now and was very impressed calling him a chameleon. Sean Majumber joined the cast in 2003 as a roving reporter named Raj Binder, an awkward, nervous and sweaty man with a strong Indian accent. The character caused some controversy at the Heritage Classic outdoor hockey game in Edmonton on November 22, 2003. When he got onto the ice during the alumni team photo and was included in the shot. Only the players and staff of the two teams were allowed in the photo, and organizers were unhappy he had snuck onto the ice to get into the photo. Eventually partly due to scheduling, Mockery left the show in 2003, and Mark Critch slid in as his replacement. According to Jeff Dion, he fit like a glove, and Mockery agreed, I like to think I was part of launching his career. And more changes were on the horizon. Mary Walsh left the show in 2004 to pursue a film career and host Mary Walsh Open Book, a celebrity panel show where she discussed books and literature. She said, After I got to year 9 or 10, I realized I wasn't coming up with new characters. I didn't know how long I could effectively go on doing what I was doing. When she left, Gavin Crawford officially replaced her. Jennifer Whalen, a writer who went on to create the fantastic Baroness Von Sketch show, said, Gavin coming into the show was a big change because of his incredible gifts. Aside from all the cast changes, 22 Minutes continued to make news. On November 17, 2004, Mark Critch was set to film a segment with Liberal MP Carolyn Parrish. Before he left, Jennifer Whalen gave him a doll of George W. Bush. While filming the segment, Parrish and Critch are seen stomping on the doll while damaging the head as they joke that that's where the least damage would occur. The tape was taken to the nearest CBC outlet to feed the footage to Halifax for editing. As it was going through the system, journalists saw the footage and snagged it for themselves. Critch said, CBC News World was going to show the tape before I had even seen it. That night, pundits debated the consequences of the segment, and the next day it was front-page news across Canada. The Conservative Party in Parliament stated that it could damage diplomatic relations with the United States and as a result, Prime Minister Paul Martin removed Parrish from the Liberal Party, and she spent the rest of her time in Parliament as an Independent. Critch called her to apologize, saying, I stressed it was never my attempt to detonate her career, but she bore me no malice. Parrish served in Parliament for another year until 2004. In 2014, she was elected as City Councilor from Mississauga, and she remains in that role to this day. Despite the controversy, this show continued to pick up hardware, After being shut out in 2002, it won Best Comedy Series, Best Direction, and Best Ensemble Performance in 2003, and Gavin Crawford picked up a Gemini for Best Performance in 2004. In 2006 and 2010, the show won the Best Ensemble Cast, Gemini, and in 2008, it picked up another Best Comedy Series. By 2005, Greg Toomey left the show and was replaced by comedian Jerry Hall, cast for a two-week trial, and then became a permanent cast member. In 2007, a young man named Nathan Fielder was hired as a special correspondent on the show. He launched Nathan On Your Side, where he gave terrible business advice to unsuspecting business owners, which became his most popular segment because of the deadpan delivery. But he wasn't a fit for the show and only appeared in nine episodes. 22 Minutes, though, helped launch his career because he turned Nathan On Your Side into Comedy Central's Nathan For You and has since created The Rehearsal and The Curse. Just a side tangent here, but I cannot express enough how fantastic the rehearsal and Nathan Free you are. If you haven't seen them, do so. By 2008, Kathy Jones was the only original cast member as Gavin Crawford, Mark Critch, and Jerry Hall joined her at the anchor desk. Even 15 years into its run, the show continued to make news. On September 12, 2008, during the federal election campaign, Jerry Hall appeared as her character, single female voter, at a press conference for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. As she sat down, she was told by a Harper staff member that she did not belong there. Hall ignored this and then stood up to ask her question, What do you have to offer me? Almost as soon as she got the words out, police descended on her and took her out of the room in handcuffs. During all of this, she remained in character and yelled, Mr. Harper, I just want to fall in love with you. I just need to know you are the right one for me. Outside the room, she identified herself as a cast member on 22 Minutes. She said, they were really going to take me to the station because they didn't know who I was or maybe did know who I was. Depends on who you want to believe. Soon after, Prime Minister Harper requested she be released and was given an exclusive interview and he told her he had never even watched 22 minutes. Despite the legacy of the show, ratings started to slip a bit to 500,000 per episode in 2009 but rebounded the following year to 800,000 viewers thanks to bits like Gordon Pinsent reading Justin Bieber's biography at the Keg restaurant. That video alone generated 300,000 views on YouTube. And then the show embarked on one of its most ambitious projects to date. Danny Williams had been the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador since 2003. He was also frequently used for comedic fodder by fellow Newfoundlander Mark Critch on 22 Minutes. When he announced his retirement in 2010, a premise was born. Williams needed to get permission to retire from the Codfather, Gordon Pinsent. Showrunner Stephen Reynolds said, It was a brilliant sketch and unlike most field pieces, this was a narrative. It was a scripted piece. We were going to shoot it like a drama. When the Codfather granted his approval for Williams' retirement, Mark Critch showed up and took them both hostage out of worry that it would cause the demise of his own career on 22 Minutes. Alan Hawko, another Newfoundlander, known for being private investigator Jake Doyle on Republic of Doyle, had to rescue the Codfather and Williams from Critch's clutches. It turned into one of the longest skits to air on 22 Minutes, and it was incredibly well received. Danny Williams loved it as well, stating, It was a lot of fun, it really was. You adapt yourself on the fly, and for whatever reason, they just seem to work. One year later, in 2011, Marge Delahunty surpassed them all with one of her most famous appearances. Even though Mary Walsh had left the show, she still made appearances as Marge Delahunty. On October 24, 2011, she conducted an ambush interview as Marge of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford at his home. Since they were going to his home, Walsh and the crew agreed that if he had his kids with him, they would abort the ambush. When Ford emerged from his home alone and closed the door behind him, Walsh walked up to Ford in costume with a 22 minutes microphone and said, Mayor Ford, it's me, Marge Delahunty. I gave up the Princess Warrior stuff, but when I saw what was happening to you, I came all the way from Newfoundland to talk to you. Ford didn't greet her with open arms. Instead, he threatened to call the police and stated she was terrifying his kids who were inside the house. When news broke about the incident, Ford said it was dark and he didn't know who she was. He also stated his daughter had been frightened and ran back into the house. Director Mark Mullins said, How can you miss a media icon with a 22 minutes microphone? It was pretty obvious. And while the story dominated the news for a few days, as with many things with 22 minutes, it eventually blew over. Walsh has continued to make appearances as Marge Delhunty in the subsequent years on 22 minutes. There have been many changes over the three decades that 22 minutes has been on the air and it's proved to be a successful format, and ratings have remained consistently at 800,000 to 1 million viewers per week. More changes came when Crawford and Hall left in 2011 and Majumberg landed on the news desk alongside Kathy Jones and Mark Critch. In 2012, Susan Kent, a writer on the show, became an anchor. With all these changes, accolades poured in for three years, from 2013 to 2015, with the show winning Best TV Show at the Canadian Comedy Awards, while also picking up Best Writing in 2014 and 2015. Trent McClellan became a main cast member in 2017 and remains one to this day. Majumber eventually left in 2019, followed by Kent in 2020. In 2021, Kathy Jones, the last original cast member, left the show. By then, she had spent nearly 30 years behind the news desk. Abba Amakwondo and Stacy McGonagall both joined in 2021, and Mark Critch continues to hold down the show, and has been doing it for the past two decades. When the Geminis held their 25th anniversary, they had the public vote for their favorite 25 shows, and this list was filled with 22 Minutes alumni. CODCO was 21st, Made in Canada was 18th, Rick Mercer Report was 14th, and 22 Minutes finished as a respectable 16th. But that's not the end of the story. As I wrap up this episode, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about Mark Critch's experience in Russia. In 2007, Russians used a submarine to plant a flag under the ice in the North Pole. As can be expected, this was not greeted warmly by Canada. Critch thought if Russia could plant a flag in Canada, we should be able to do the same in Russia. With a small crew, he flew to Russia and made his way to Red Square. With the camera rolling, he pulled out the Canadian flag on a tripod and said, "Okay, Russia. You dropped a flag at the North Pole and you've claimed it as yours, so I dropped a Canadian flag in Red Square. We own Russia now, your rules. Within 60 seconds, two police cars showed up and Critch was questioned by police. He explained he just wanted to show love for Russia from Canada. Thankfully, they told him to leave Red Square and never come back. There aren't many Canadian shows that could cause an international incident, but 22 minutes absolutely can. I hope you enjoyed that episode, and our look at This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Next week, we're looking at the story of Henry Hudson. And I would like to say thank you to Mark Critch, who was nice enough to send a copy of his book, An Embarrassment of Critches, over to me to use in my research. Information from Wikipedia, Maclean, CBC, Canadian Encyclopedia, 25 Years of 22 Minutes, Talking to Americans, and Son of a Critch. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio Production and Design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.